0: Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Our final guest for Unobscured Season 3 is Paul Begg. When he published Jack the Ripper, The Uncensored Facts in 1990, he set a new standard for serious historical writing about the Whitechapel murders and challenged writers and investigators to bring a more complete and critical eye to the case. Fortunately for all of us, Paul Begg continued to work in that mold. With each new book, Paul Begg has commanded the attention of interested readers and professional historians alike. Paul has worked solo as well as with other writers to publish books like Jack the Ripper, The Definitive History, The Complete Jack the Ripper, A to Z, and recently, Jack the Ripper, The Forgotten Victims. And along the way, Paul's books have demonstrated to interested readers, like Adam Wood, for instance, what had been missing from the discussion, without his comprehensive and rigorous devotion to historical detail. His collaborative spirit and his dedication to primary sources have made him a universally respected authority on the history and the facts of the case. Researcher Carl Nellis asked Paul to take us back to how it all began for him, and so that's how it'll all begin for us. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 3. I'm Aaron Mankey.
1: I started off investigating historical mysteries of one sort or another and it was coming to the centenary of the the jack the ripper murders and i'd always been interested in jack the ripper and i bought every book that i could find at that time and nobody had really done a history of who saw what where and when which i suppose is part of my journalistic background and so i decided to write a book that didn't have anything to do with suspects, but just looked at the crimes. And that book led to another book and another one after that. And so before I knew it, I was spending probably the best part of my life researching Jack the Ripper, which in a way I regret because I would like to have researched something infinitely more important. But at the same time, Jack the Ripper is is becomes a, a acutely interesting subject to to research and write about.
2: Mm. Well, and I can say, for my own part, I'm really grateful for the historical approach that you've taken, uh, and the way that you have researched and written about 1888 in Whitechapel. And you know, so for for this program, we've been consulting your definitive history, uh, the facts, uh, and I've especially appreciated the perspective that you take in The Forgotten Victims. And we hope that listeners interested in thoughtful, detailed work will seek out your books. And maybe as a as a way into that, as a historian, how would you describe your historical approach? Uh, you mentioned a history of the crimes, rather than focusing on the suspect. Uh, but if you would put yourself in the context of other history writing, uh, what kind of is your approach as a writer of these histories?
1: Well, I think it, it's important to just establish those basic facts, as I as I mentioned earlier, the very basic stuff of who saw what, where, when, and and why that. Uh, every good story should have and and very often, uh, particularly in the history of something like crime, that's one thing that people don't do they are they they will describe the crime, but their their real interest is is in the suspect and I think in historical crime, uh, the great thing about it is that it it uh, it enables you to see people doing normal things at the time a murder is committed. So it's one of the few ways that you actually have a chance to see historically people doing ordinary things, which historians don't normally bother to look at. And consequently, we don't find out about.
2: So in kind of general terms, how would you describe that ordinary life? for most people in the East End of London in 1888, that we get a glimpse of when we look at and almost through this series of horrific crimes and then see the ordinary life that was happening around it. Uh, what do we see? What do we see there?
1: I think we see, we see, uh, we see an awful lot, actually. Uh, uh, <laughs> but we, it's a very hard life um, that the people were living at that time. Uh, particularly in the East End, and so it it was uh, it was it was tough, but but an event like a murder captures the, the witnesses and the investigators in that moment of time, going about their day to day lives, and there are things main as I said, mainstream histories don't often tell you, and that many people probably. <laughs> probably wouldn't choose to read, even if uh, historians did. Uh, (laughs) For example, there were lots of horses, lots of them. So what did you do if your horse was injured in an accident or if it dropped dead in the street? And how dirty were those streets, awash with horse urine and worse, and what was it really like to travel in a handsome cab, rocking along like a ship tossed in a storm, cold in winter, hot in summer? And then, of course, if you opened the window in the handsome cab, because it was getting very hot, the horse's hooves flicked the mess from the street back into the cab, which brings us back to to horses. And uh, so, we, you know, all of that is sort of stuff that, you don't normally find out about. Even the Sherlock Holmes story, how you have Holmes bowling along in a handsome cab, but we don't actually get told what it was really like. And we don't have DOS houses anymore. People don't go into, wor- into the workhouse. We buy our milk from a supermarket, not from a dedicated milk shop. Uh, we carry a torch to see in the dark, not an oil lamp. And we don't have music halls and we don't have pubs every few yards. Um, so a murder is a, a terrible thing, but it tells us about ordinary people going to the who have to go into the workhouse and who have to go into a DOS house. And we can find out a little bit what it was like from people who were writing at the time and we, we can we can collect that information together but it there aren't that many books that go out and tell you these things and when they do it can be it does can sometimes not have that level of interest that uh the murder story has it doesn't have that frisson of drama attached to it. So when when you're discovering how people lived and how their world functioned, uh, that can be really interesting uh, when when it's attached to a murder because very often in some small way, those things, uh, knowing about those things, could be relevant to understanding uh, the murder itself and perhaps knowing who the murderer was.
2: Mm. Mm. For a little more context, um, the Ripper murders weren't the only kinds of violent crime in London's East End. They weren't the only killings in that year. And there was enough violent crime on record in the neighborhood throughout the 1880s that we can get a more textured picture. Uh, How violent was Whitechapel? And what was the general understanding of that violence among contemporary observers, writers? And what do we know about how the people in the neighborhood of Whitechapel or uh, Wapping or, or around Bethnal Green, mm. um, what did they think of the violence in their neighborhoods?
1: Well, I think, it's, again, it's one of those things that is, is somewhat difficult to, uh, to pinpoint. The people themselves actually thought what we get a lot of is what people coming from outside the area thought of it. So you have lots of uh, reasonably well-off middle-class people commenting on the horrors that they saw and witnessed in the East End, but not a great deal of what people who lived there actually experienced. The facts and figures suggest that there weren't very many murders, surprisingly, in the East End of London. And in fact, uh, I think off the top of my head, I mean, it, it, for, for the period of 1888, most of the murders that were committed there were the, were, were the Jack the Ripper murders. There weren't very many other than those. As for v- the violence of the area, well, that's a different thing altogether. And... Uh, uh, it does. There, there does seem to have been a, a, a considerable amount of, of, of violence and very nasty violence of the sort that would make the top of the news today if it happened. Um, and and things were happening. I was just reading recently about uh, an altercation that took place, uh, and the man threw an oil lamp. At uh, at somebody, and although he wasn't intending to hit that person, he missed, uh, and he hit the wall behind him, and the and the the oil lamp shattered, and and it burst into flame, and the person was caught, was splattered with the oil from the lamp, and and uh, was burned quite badly, and of course there was an awful lot of. Uh, of domestic violence going on. So uh, one, another story uh, told by a policeman called Benjamin Leeson. He was walking down Dorset Street uh, and suddenly a knife was thrown from one of the uh, the houses and stuck into some boarding clo- close to him. So, I mean, it's quite possible that you could be walking down the street and have a knife Thrown at you for no reason whatsoever.
2: Hmm.
1: So it was quite, it was quite a dangerous place, and it was known. Uh, even the police, when you read the newspapers and the police reports, uh, it was it was violent. But one of the problems is that you get stories about um, sailors coming into Whitechapel from the docks. And one such man, Thomas Sadler, for example, was walking down a street and he was attacked and robbed. Um, And yet, other times, people are walking around the streets and they don't see a soul. It would appear that one of Jack the Ripper's victims, uh, the first one, Mary Ann Nichols, walked about half a mile without being seen by anybody as she walked down a main street.
2: Hmm.
1: So, uh, some of the information that you get can be quite conflicting. But hopefully, we will be able over the next years to be able to uh, learn a lot more.
2: Hmm. And and from what I've read, uh, there are some places where it was especially dangerous to be if you were a policeman.
1: Well, again, it is a common story that policemen wouldn't venture down Dorset Street uh, unless they were in pairs. Mm. And um, I think that uh, I, I can't find, I'm not saying it's not true, it's just that I can't find any evidence of that being the case. And I can read of other areas outside of the East End which were uh, known to be particularly dangerous, and the same thing is said of those streets. So it it uh, it really does depend. Uh, Dorset Street may have been a, a dangerous street, but other streets, like Flower and Dean Street, and Thrall Street, they were both uh, they were all just a, as dangerous to walk down, just as rough. And mm. it's not said that policemen walk down those streets in pairs. So I think you have to take certain Later statements with a pinch of salt.
2: Mm-hmm. Hmm. Would you would you describe Dorset Street for us?
1: Uh, yes, it, Dorset Street was uh, was a fairly narrow street. Uh, it had a pub one end and a bigger pub the other end, and a small pub in the middle. Uh, and it was otherwise pretty much uh, lined with uh, with what were called. Common lodging houses or DOS houses. Uh, there was a little shop there run by a man called John McCarthy, which was basically a, an all-night grocer's shop. Uh, and really nothing about it to be to be alarmed about. It had started out its life being known as Datchet Street. Uh, that became Dorset Street and The locals used to call it Dossett Street because of the number of Doss Houses that it contained. And it was the Doss Houses which had a really bad reputation for being places of immorality, because not too many questions were asked if a man and a woman turned up wanting a bed together. Uh, And they were thought to be hotbeds of crime and uh, and thievery, uh, and so they weren't really looked upon uh, very kindly. But in fact, they were fairly horrible places, but especially by today's standards, but they really were the poor man's hotel. They were where you went, uh, you could buy a bed for the night, uh, and it's popularly argued that sometimes some just strung a rope from one, side of the room to the other and uh, for a penny you could lean on the rope and go to sleep there there are photographs of of this sort of thing happening but uh, i think uh that was a fairly uncommon practice but uh, mm. so that yeah the, the doss houses were thought to be fairly dangerous and and to some extent they were uh and the uh, that gave dorset street a really bad name which grew worse over the years uh, as more murders were committed there. Mm-hmm.
2: Hmm. Hmm. When it comes to policing the East End, um and especially heading toward the events of eighteen eighty eight and the, the the personalities and the people, um let's go to Charles Warren. Can you briefly describe uh, Charles Warren's, uh, maybe his personality and his career leading up to 1888? Uh, Who was Charles Warren?
1: Yes, so Charles Warren basically was a soldier, a scholar, engineer, uh, an administrator. He had basically been undertaking or overseeing engineering work done in various uh, places abroad. He was also an archaeologist. Of some distinction, and uh, eventually was a a senior uh, Freemason, and um, he undertook excavation work in uh, in Egypt and elsewhere in Palestine. Um, And he was, uh, but it's also been claimed that that whilst he was doing this work, he was acting as a spy and mapping out land for um, for the government. But he was quite distinguished in that respect, wrote a couple of books about it. And he also played a part in investigating uh, the death of a professor who'd gone out out there and had gone missing and had actually been murdered by uh, the natives. And Warren tracked down the natives and found out who they were, which really was uh Was no mean feat. So he came back to the UK as uh, you know, quite quite a bit of a national hero. Actually, the way the newspapers had uh, had portrayed his actions abroad. So he came back. um, He he was uh, chosen to be commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, He that was probably a very good decision because uh, certainly the press welcomed it, because the police needed to be, uh, were in desperate need really of uh, organisation. Later he was accused of organising the police too much along military lines, paying Too much attention to minor things such as uh, boots (laughs) and shoes and things, but he did have a very keen concern about the welfare of the ordinary policeman. So, um, what is interesting is that what happened at the time of Jack the Ripper uh, caused a change in the police which uh, has carried on through to today and probably, I mean, I think it might be fair to say it's affected things on really on both sides of the Atlantic and elsewhere. When the police were formed, it was formed as an organization to uh, protect the public from crime. and protect and, and prevent crime. And that was the reason why they started, why, why you had policemen patrolling the streets on their beat. Detective work was really perceived as a sign of failure. Mm-hmm. To have the detective meant that a crime had been committed and that needed needed to be detected, whereas the whole object of the police was to, was that crimes were not going to be committed. So there was this difference. Now, a man called James Monroe, his background being very much detecting crime, he had been uh, done a fair amount of uh, work as as running a clandestine side of things. And so he was aware of of all of that, especially when he was uh, head of the police in India. And he was appointed head of the CID, which is the detective branch of, uh, of Scotland Yard. And so you had these two men who were really either end of things and when Warren resigned as he did later uh, in 1888 he was replaced by James Monroe and so whereas Warren in his annual report had not even bothered to mention anything about the detectives Monroe was very pro his department Mm. and That's carried through right down to today, where more interest is being given, is given to detectives, and many detectives almost became superstars in the past, Uh, but the ordinary copper on a beat, the copper in uniform, uh, is almost seen as a lesser being, which wasn't the case under Warren's regime. Warren, unfortunately, uh, after he resigned, he was sent out to, uh, to fight abroad. And he made a. Uh, there, there's some slight evidence to the effect that he was, that a, a man, a, a general appointing him, was suffering from senility and thought he was somebody else. Thought Warren was somebody else and appointed him to a job that he was uh, seriously deficient in experience to undertake. Mm. And there was a battle at, at a place called Speon Cop, and it was an absolute disaster. And that's basically stuck with Warren uh, and has damaged his reputation for the rest of his life and right down to today. Mm.
2: Now his time as commissioner only lasted about 2 years, is that right? 86 to 88.
1: That's right, yeah.
2: Yeah. And as well as having a difference of approach to Monroe, he also had frequent conflicts with Matthews, the home secretary. Yeah. Um can you describe what the conflicts were in their relationship?
1: Well, basically, uh, when Sir Charles Warren uh, accepted the commissionership of the Metropolitan Police, he believed that he had full authority over the police, uh, and he wasn't aware, uh, so well led us believe, that he was answerable to the Home Secretary and to various uh, of the uh, the Home Office uh, mandarins. And so he wanted to have full control over what was going on. That first of all brought him into conflict with James Monroe, who also believed that he had uh, almost complete authority over the CID, and he resented Warren's involvement with the CID, and he resented Warren almost ignoring the CID. Matthews was also a fairly difficult man, as was the sort of liaison between the two, which was a man called Godfrey Lushington. And it, it eventually got to a point where uh, Monroe, uh, sorry, where Warren wrote an article uh, but he hadn't received permission to write that article, and he felt that all he could do at that time was offer his resignation, which he did, and that's why he went. But it typifies the sort of relationship that he had with Henry Matthews, is that the Metropolitan Police was being criticised, and he thought the criticism was unjustified, and so he defended his department only to discover that he could only defend his department, providing he had the permission of Henry Matthews to do so. And if therefore, if Henry Matthews said no, he had no alternative but to sit back and and sort of bite his tongue and seethe. And those are the sort of conflicts that they had. And in the previous, prior to the murders, there had been what, Turned out to be a riot in Trafalgar Square, as a consequence of the unemployed wanting to hold meetings. And there was this march was planned to take place on Trafalgar Square, and Warren, uh, they, 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 the Matthews couldn't make up his mind what the legal. Uh, situation was with regard to trying to stop these marches so uh he vas- vacillated from one thing to another warren was putting out instructions that the march couldn't go ahead and then it was all right to go ahead everybody was getting frustrated the whole thing blew up into a riot that uh, was quite nasty and warren got blamed for the whole thing so he was you know he was he matthews was a bit of a waste of time really he he probably had his own troubles which unfortunately we don't know a huge amount about um but uh he he doesn't he he seems to have fallen out with most people in one way or another um and Mm. the even the government wanted him really found him unsuitable as home secretary but for various political reasons, they were not able to get rid of him. So he had to stay in office, even though he was causing quite a bit of difficulty.
2: Mm. Mm. Let's talk a couple of other people who ended up being pivotal figures, um, either in the investigation of the Whitechapel mor- murders or in uh, the reporting on the Whitechapel murders. Uh, let's talk Dr. Win Baxter. Um who was he? Why is he such a significant figure uh in the investigation and in the press reporting about the Whitechapel murders?
1: Well, uh Win Baxter was actually uh a lawyer not a not a doctor, but um which was possibly one of the problems.
2: Mm. Uh
1: he he was the coroner for uh Uh, the the area where at least three of the murders were committed. And so it was his job to to basically inquire into the the, the crime and, and to establish cause of death, time of death and details like that. There's also the fact that he felt a little bit that part of things were with an unsolved crime that there was a responsibility there to in, in, interview and gave the get gain. I'm sorry, interview and gave the evidence of people so that in the event uh, their testimony would be that would given under oath would be available uh, to to be brought to court if at some point in the future uh, somebody was put on trial for the crime, because mm. uh, they couldn't always guarantee that some that a witness would could be found or, or would even be alive. Uh, Baxter is distinguished for perhaps being a little pedantic. He, he questioned in depth. The, his inquests covered uh, several weeks. There, there were adjournments, um, and the press would speculate whilst the, the adjournment was taking place, and there would be uh, lots of press reporting around around the the, the the inquests themselves, the days that the inquests were held. So he was thought in some instances to be a bit of a, bit of a pain, a bit of a nuisance. Uh, so that, that, but thank goodness he was, because it's only as a consequence of his inquest that we have as much information about the crimes as we do.
2: Hmm. Mm. The 1880s offered the London police little by way of the forensic techniques that detectives use today. Um, but over the course of investigating the Whitechapel murders, there are a few interesting ideas that were suggested, suggested uh, in one setting or another, either at CID or in an inquest, um, that might even seem a little strange today. Uh, what were some of the, the cutting-edge methods that were considered for collecting and analyzing evidence in the course of investigating the murders?
1: Well, the... <laughs> The, uh, it's a, it's, it's a difficult thing because the police hadn't actually encountered something of this kind, uh, before. So for a lot of them, this was a a new and, uh, difficult experience. And the police had, uh, over the years, they had worked out how things were to be done. So the police... Basically, in 1888, they were required to protect the crime scene pretty much as we do today, although to compare how we protect a crime scene today from how they protected a crime scene in 1888, you would see very considerable differences. But ideally, the the body should be described and, and looked at before. The doctor and other policemen came up and trampled all over the uh, the area. Hmm. The police were supposed to uh, look at the clothing and uh, and look at other aspects of the uh, the, the physical side of the crime. Uh, the, the a doctor would look for uh, would would be there to ensure that death had happened, but would also be t- providing a time of death would be uh trying to determine what the weapon used was uh and where it was used from uh and and so on and so forth which is all pretty much the same sort of thing that that, that is done today they didn't have any really t- uh techniques of anything they they couldn't uh, they couldn't identify human blood, um, couldn't distinguish that too well. Uh, they obviously they didn't have anything like DNA. Uh, photography they did use for crime scenes. They did that in the case of Mary Kelly, but it was a fairly rudimentary uh, process, and bad lighting could affect that. So they were they were really down uh in detecting crime was was down to hard-nosed detective work uh lacking the science that that we're used to today Mm.
2: Mm -hmm. so let's start stepping toward that investigation of the murders themselves um one of the interesting facts that complicated the investigation was that robert anderson was absent from office on the day that Marianne Nichols is killed. And mm-hmm. he continues a month-long sick leave uh, the day after Annie Chapman is killed. Um, can you describe the department that he left behind when he was on this sick leave? Well,
1: what happened with, with, with Sir Robert Anderson was that he was appointed uh, head of the CID. And he had, he, or he says that he, his doctor had at that point pre- prescribed him with a necessary holiday because he was suffering from exhaustion. So when he was appointed to the job, he made this point known and uh, the date <clears throat> when and, and for how long he should take uh, leave was uh, given to him by Sir Charles Warren. So it wasn't actually Anderson's choice to go at that time. Mm. Uh, that was the time that uh, Warren wanted him to leave because Warren was actually expecting uh, there to be uh, an upsurge later on in in eighteen eighty eight uh, when there would be when he thought there would be further demonstrations uh, by the unemployed as had happened to him in the previous year. So he wanted Anderson back and uh, fully ensconced in the uh, assistant commissioner's chair uh, for later in the year. So he told him to go at that time. So Anderson went on holiday. Uh, He couldn't have known that uh, there was going to be a murder on the day he left, nor could he have known or would he have uh, expected that there would be another murder Straight afterwards, um, and so he was. He when he was alerted to, to, to come back, uh, he he did so. So Anderson was away, but I don't think any any blame uh, can be assigned to Anderson for that fact. Uh, what he left behind, of course, was uh, was a department that didn't have him at the top, but it seems to have functioned reasonably well. Uh, The investigation seems to have gone ahead and it was towards the end of Anderson's absence abroad that the police um, decided to do a house to house search uh, for investigating uh, men who were living on their own. So all the th- all the all the usual things seem to have done in the ca- being done with the murders of uh, of uh, Annie Chapman and uh, Mary Nichols.
2: Mhm. Mhm. Um who was Mary Ann or or Polly Nichols? What do we know about her life? Well, um
1: Mary Ann Nichols was was born in 1845. Uh, near Fleet Street, which is where lots of newspapers were located until relatively recently. Um, She was the middle of of three children. The the others were brothers, one older and the other younger. And she married a man called William Nichols in 1864. Um, He was a printer, and they would have five children. And they lived quite comfortably in a block of flats or apartments, as you might call them. Uh, known as Peabody Buildings, which uh, the, this was a, a somewhat upmarket place. You had to uh, be, you had to pass certain quali- have certain qualifications to to be uh, allowed to live there. And they had uh, shared toilet facilities. There were cooking facilities. There was a clothes washing area. You could even uh, book and have a hot bath every day if you liked hmm. so there were facilities for for personal hygiene and most of those things with, were were things that uh, people in the uh, surrounding houses didn't necessarily enjoy so you can see that this was quite a uh, they were a little bit upmarket and paying a modest rent for for this kind of establishment but about 1880, the couple separated. The, the precise circumstances aren't properly f- understood. But William Nichols said that Mary Ann began drinking heavily and had left him on several occasions. Uh, then she left him for good and he provided some financial support. But in 1882, he discovered that she was living by prostitution and ceased making the payments. He was uh, summoned for maintenance but proved his case. Uh, and that mm. is uh, what is said in the police, one of the police reports that have survived. Uh, Mary's life thereafter uh, is a series of, of, of stays in workhouses uh, until August 1888. When she was staying in a common lodging house in Thrall Street, Spitalfields, paying fourpence a night for a bed, she then moved to uh, another workhouse. uh, Sorry, uh, another lodging house, and it was uh, that's where she was living when, on the thirty-first of August, uh, she was found dead in a street called Bucks Road. Mm.
2: Um so one of the people who is responsible for determining what happened uh is a detective named Frederick Aberline who is uh attached to H division the Whitechapel uh division I believe um can you describe what approach he would have taken uh to beginning a murder investigation before there's a kind of uh, expectation that it's a serial killing. There's no idea about there being some figure named Jack the Ripper. It's just Frederick Aberline and CID investigating a murder. What would uh, what would Abberline's approach have been?
1: Well, first of all, there there were there had been two murders in Whitechapel prior. To the murder of Mary Ann Nichols. Mm-hmm. The first had been early in the year when a woman named Emma Elizabeth Smith uh, was attacked, by, apparently, by, by a group of three men. Um, and one of them had rammed uh, some sort of object into her, causing uh, peritonitis to set in, uh, from which she had died. And then about a week before uh, Mary Ann Nichols was murdered, another woman called Martha Tabram had been murdered on the landings of uh, a block of flats. Uh, and she had been stabbed uh, nearly 30 times uh, and in a fren- fairly frenzied attack. Uh, a lot of the stabs being to the area of the, the genitals and the upper thighs and so forth. So then the murder of Marianne Nichols came along. So that was the third murder in Whitechapel, remembering that there weren't any other murders taking place. Those were the only three murders that had taken place in Whitechapel mm-hmm. uh, at that time. So... Uh, By the time he got to Nichols, it was beginning to be recognized that there was something odd going on. Now, the original idea was that that the murders had perhaps been committed by a, a, a gang who'd been extorting money from the local prostitutes. And so, basically, these two attacks—first of all, a, a very violent attack that wasn't necessarily intended to kill, and then a frenzied attack on, uh, which obviously was intended to kill—but uh, were were these were lessons to show what other women could expect if they didn't uh, pay up to the gang. So that was the uh, th- had been a prevailing theory uh, in. Sp- Vector Aberline had been assigned to uh, the Whitechapel area uh, in March 1873 and had been uh, been there until February uh, 1887, at which point he was transferred to the uh, Met's headquarters, Scotland Yard. So when Nichols was murdered he was sent back to investigate the murders because he knew the area really well and was uh, very well respected there and, and uh, knew a lot of people. So he, he would uh, have had quite a lot of eyes on the ground, as it were. Uh, and so his investigation uh, was really came to the conclusion that uh, it was, he then sort of abandoned the idea that uh, this was a gang and he came to the conclusion that they'd probably all been committed by the same person and that the murder of Mary Ann Nichols was by one person and not a gang and that that
2: person was a man. So why um why would the the earlier killings of Emma Smith and Martha Tabram later be omitted from considerations of the case as a whole by someone like Dr. Thomas Bond on November 10th?
1: Well, to be honest, I don't think we really know why Bond uh didn't include those crimes. He, he was he he wasn't asked to uh, take any part in in the the examination of those crimes. And it was with Nichols that we start to get uh, detailed descriptions of what were happening. So it may well be that his he was only provided with information uh, from Nichols to Mary Kelly, which was a, a crime that he was responsible for. It mm. actually was there. And he only worked from the reports that he had been provided up to uh, the uh, the murder of, uh, of Mary Kelly. Mm. Uh,
2: now, just before... Annie Chapman's murder, Um, the radical newspaper, uh, The Star, which had been publishing for less than a year, um, they began to trumpet the story that Polly Nichols' killer was a Jew named Leather Apron. Can you describe when these reports start hitting the public? What kinds of stereotypes about Jewish life in the East End would these reports have conjured up for The Star's readership?
1: Well, the the East End Jewish community was was largely consisted of recent immigrants fleeing persecution in Eastern Europe. Uh, they formed tight knit communities, often often uh, built around people who had come across from their fr- from the same village. So whole streets could be taken over by uh, People who fled from the same village abroad, and, and they, mm. in Eastern Europe, and they had, uh, they'd have their own uh, little places of worship, and of course, uh, because they they were looking for kosher food, they would only be eating uh, the food provided in the main by their own community. So that alienated a lot of the the native people, especially when accommodation that had formerly been made available to uh one family uh the the immigrants coming from eastern europe were uh content to take a room with the whole family living in a room and so these properties many of these properties could be let to lots of people instead of one person and so the Hmm single tenants were finding it very hard to find somewhere to live. And so there was a, a lot of ill feeling about these people. Um, which basically boils down to the difficulty that we have in being able to distinguish between hostility towards people because they were Jewish or just because they were um they, they, they were uh they were foreigners and not using not not sort of um relating well to to the native population, so that was the first thing that that it's a bit uncertain about
2: mm.
1: and the but what's interesting i think about the leather apron story is uh, he was portrayed in the Star as a Jewish criminal, almost sort of in the, in the tradition of Dickens Fagin. Uh, the Star reported that he moved through the streets at night. Uh, he was strangely silent, very menacing, and threatening the prostitutes with a sharp leather knife. That's a knife to cut leather, not a knife made out of leather. <laughs> yes. uh, as the star reported, his, uh, it, it said, his expression is sinister and seems to be full of terror for the women who described it. His eyes are small and glittering. His lips are usually parted in a grin, which is not only not reassuring, but excessively repellent. I mean, so they're really going overboard in their description of, uh, of this sort of nightmare creation. Mm. And they also describe features which are stereotyp- stereotypically Jewish. So it was quite obvious what they were aiming at. Uh, the interesting thing is that, is that leather apron probably didn't to, it never existed. Um, mm. There were undoubtedly men who stole from the women and... Uh, It may well be that it was some of these men who women thought was the leather apron being described. But as far as we can tell, the original story seems to have been credited to a man called Harry Dam. And he was an American journalist who was working briefly for the Star in London. Uh, He was young, and it seems likely that some of the, the women he spoke to when he was sent to the East End to gain information, uh, fed him the basics of the Leather Apron story, uh, and then he exaggerated that and and worked that up in a way that American journalists were a bit more used to doing uh, than the British journalists were. Mm. And unfortunately uh, for him, it turned out that there was a man in the East End with the nickname of leather apron. And so the star story really didn't do that man much, uh, many favors.
2: Mm, and that man's name was, was John Pizer. That's that right. right. Um, so when this story comes to attach to John Pizer, what are the consequences for him?
1: Well, John Pizer was the, was the son of a, a Polish immigrant. Uh, and he was a slipper maker by trade. he, And uh, he wore a leather apron, which was the usual attire for someone in in his life, uh, uh, line of business. And for some reason, it had also won him the nickname Leather Apron, probably because he walked to work and, uh, and came home and everything, wearing the apron. We don't really know an awful lot about him for certain, except that his health was poor, Uh, that a police sergeant, for some reason, thought it likely that he was the man allegedly spoken about by the local prostitutes to the star, And so he was arrested and hauled in. And, of course, uh, uh, the result of that was that, uh, first of all, he found himself... Uh, with with the the, the fear of Jack the Ripper being held over his head uh, and and sort of fighting not to be sent to the gallows. Uh, And uh, and secondly, uh, it awakened even more animosity towards the Jews because suddenly this, uh, to a lot of people, it looked like this uh, murderer was a Jew, was one of the, the... recent immigrants from Eastern Europe.
2: Is there a way to kind of generally describe the relationship between the police and the press and the East end Jewish community in mid September, 1888? Is there something that characterizes the relationship between those three kind of parties to what's happening here at the beginning of the, of the murder investigation?
1: Well, I think the police the police seem to have been fairly uh, mixed, in, as as I suppose you would expect. They they were fairly mixed in their opinions about the, the 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 immigrant Jewish population, but then the native Jewish population was were, was unhappy about them as well. So they were not really uh, winning on on any count. So the police, but. At the time of the crimes, the police uh, were were very happy with the way that uh, that the the Jews had accommodated their their inquiries, and yet on the other hand, we have policemen reporting that they were keeping watch on some Jewish property, uh, and they had to pretend to be not to be policemen because if it had been known that they were policemen, uh, their lives would have been at risk. So it. It's very difficult. One suspects that the Jewish immigrants kept very much to themselves as far as the police were concerned because uh, the police had been the agents of their persecutors uh, in Eastern Europe. So they're not likely to have been particularly uh, anxious to to, uh, get involved with them. Hmm. The press was... Again, uh, at times openly hostile. They, they, there was uh, a lot of anti-Semitic uh, views were being expressed. But again, there's still this uncertainty about whether it was anti-Semitic or whether it was anti-immigrant. Uh, and so the press and the, the local population, again, they were they were fairly... Uh, hostile towards the immigrant population. And in a sense, understandably so, these people had, were coming in large numbers, uh, fleeing abroad. They were coming with uh, lots of, uh, of beliefs of their own. They were coming from small villages into, into a big city. Uh, they didn't speak the language. They didn't understand the customs, and for the most part, they kept themselves to themselves. So, by not integrating with the with the population, uh, they weren't at that stage doing themselves any any favors either. So, uh, it was it was really a very difficult situation. It could flare up at any moment.
2: Mm. So let's turn to Dr. George Baxter Phillips, who was the police surgeon who responds to the scene of Annie Chapman's murder. Can you describe a police surgeon's role and the work that someone like uh, Dr. Baxter Phillips was doing at the time? Well, a
1: police surgeon was a surgeon, obviously, uh, (laughs) often a local (laughs) doctor who was called upon to visit a murder scene to confirm death, determine whether it was from natural causes or not. And in the case of it not being from natural causes, then the surgeon was supposed to uh, estimate time of death, estimate things such as the instrument used, uh, how it was used, and, and so on. So the police surgeon very often performed... The uh, the autopsy as well, and when necessary, uh, and he gave, would give evidence at the inquest and at the trial, if there was one. And he could also be called upon to give advice to the police as and when they needed it. So uh, the police surgeon was was a fairly central figure, and usually, uh, well, almost always lived in the area where the uh, where, where the the policemen were. So H division had its own, uh, police surgeons.
2: Hmm. Can you describe the influence of Dr. Baxter Phillips judgment of Annie Chapman's murder? How did what he concluded, uh, affect the investigation as a whole?
1: Well, yes, in, in his case, uh, Dr. Baxter Phillips did, uh, influence the, the direction of the investigation. Um, in the case of Annie Chapman, uh, the most important thing that the police surgeon did was the estimate of time of death. Now, he estimated that she had died around about 4.20 in the morning. However, he was not certain uh, because the effect uh, conditions such as loss of blood and the coldness of the of the day of that morning uh, could have had on the body, so he wasn't certain about time of death, but he said around about four twenty. It could have been earlier; it could have been later. The police gave weight to the police surgeon's conclusion, hmm. whereas when Baxter uh, he gave weight to witness testimony, and those witnesses were uh, a woman who may have passed Annie Chapman with her murderer not long before the murder itself, and there was a neighbour uh, who may have heard overheard the murder taking place. So the police tended to virtually ignore both of those witnesses because what they claimed to have seen and heard took place after the estimated time of death. But of course, if Dr. Phillips was wrong, and it would have been fairly significantly wrong in the time of death, then those witnesses should have been accorded uh, greater uh, seriousness than they were. So Mm -hmm. in that instance, we have a case of the doctor's evidence then, and for theorists still now, being uh, a matter of considerable argument today, at least.
2: Hmm. Hmm. You've mentioned uh, the length of the inquests that Wynne Baxter held. Um, the inquest for, for Nichols and for Chapman conclude uh, just four days apart from each other. At that point, after both of those inquests have closed, um, what were the results? Was there kind of a prevailing opinion, uh, especially among the detectives and uh, those who were running the investigation about what was happening?
1: Yes. By the time Abiline was transferred to Whitechapel to take charge of the investigation, uh, the, he concluded that uh, at least Nichols had been killed by one person. And there are press reports that suggest that he was also of the opinion at that stage that possibly uh, Smith and uh, Tabram were also killed by the same person. So there was a movement now towards thinking that uh, uh, that they were dealing with, with what today we would call a serial killer. Now, it has to be realized that whilst the police... Uh, so, well, certainly senior policemen, uh, members of the medical profession and the judiciary were aware of a thing of, of what we call serial killers. They didn't, the, the average man in the street didn't understand it at all. It was a completely new and frightening uh, phenomenon as far as they were concerned. Mm. The senior police and the doctors and so forth didn't have uh, a shared language with which to describe these people. So whereas we quite happily talk about serial killer, and you know what I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. uh, back then they didn't. And also the prevailing medical opinion was basically one that, these people were uh, moral defectives in the way that insane people were insane. Um, and so they had a, a brain issue and others thought that the serial killer was had a moral deficiency, which obviously we now know Well, (laughs) obviously they do have a moral deficiency, but it's not an illness. Um, So there was a considerable amount of of uncertainty about what serial killers were. Uh, But it was... and, And for the average man in the street, this was a completely new experience. And that is where what I suppose you might call the beginnings of ripperology lie, because people then, the man in the street and in the newspapers, uh, tried to speculate about the kind of person they thought the murderer was. Mm. So they weren't coming up with names, but they were thinking of things like a deranged doctor or a mad midwife or... uh, uh, a, a religious fanatic so they were they, they were trying to to work out who the murderer was by that kind of method and so that's what and so the and the the, the Nichols and Chapman uh, inquests partly running side by side meant that the press had a lot of time uh, a lot of days in which to speculate about who the murderer was and, and what sort of person he was and what the police were doing and what the police should be doing and what the police weren't doing. Mm. And so it was all uh, really quite a new form phenomenon, really, for, for everybody to be dealing with.
2: Mm. And then we have the Dear Boss letter arriving at the press office. Can you describe that letter and what effect it had on the investigation?
1: Well, there was a news agency called Central News, and they claimed to have received this letter on the 27th of September, 1888, and treated it first as a joke. But on the 29th of September, they passed it across to the the police. And this letter started, Dear Boss, and the text purported to be from the murderer who signed himself, Jack the Ripper. And whether or not the police actually believed that this letter came from the murderer, they gave publicity to the letter, probably just in the hope that someone might recognize the handwriting and they could uh, investigate from that. The letter did two things. First of all, it was the first time the name Jack the Ripper was used. And whoever dreamt that up, well, it was a work of genius, really. It caught the public's imagination, and it continues to do so. Hmm. Uh, Whether or not the murders would have been so widely known without it isn't known, but it certainly did no harm to the longevity of the story. And it also briefly passed into the language, because people started to threaten to jack the ripper somebody. And almost any murder bearing the least similarity, and to be honest, sometimes no similarity, were called Jack the Ripper murders. Uh, The newspapers reported Jack the Ripper murders from all around the world. Mm. The second thing it did was to spark a letter-writing bug in thousands of people. So the police were deluged with advice from the public and from the murderer, or at least so the letters uh alleged um the, the, the dear boss was just one of, uh, of of a number of letters that made it into print but not all of them uh were were, were printed made their way into the newspapers in, in fact it would seem that there were thousands of letters were received uh, in many, the writers suggested that the murderer was somebody they knew. Others suggested the type of person the ripper was, a policeman or a doctor, as I've said, uh, and how, aware, how and where he might be caught. In in others, people suggested how the police should do their job. Mm. Uh, others were supposed to be from the murderer and they were jeering or gloating about the stupidity of the police or giving the location of where he intended to strike next. And other letters were sent to newspapers, and a few were sent to private individuals. In the latter case, uh, indeed, a few people were even arrested for writing these letters, most of them thinking that they were being funny when they did so.
2: Mm. Mm. Uh, Would you describe the Saucy Jackie postcard?
1: Yeah, the the saucy Jackie postcard was posted to the Central News on the first of October, eighteen eighty-eight. It also addressed the recipient as boss, uh, and other content suggested that it was written by the same person as the Dear Boss letter. And the postcard appeared to give details of the murders of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes that only the killer, at that time, could have. have known, it's now thought possible uh, that it could have been posted after the details of the murder were published. And neither Dear Boss nor Saucy Jackie are are really now believed to have been written by the murderer at all, but they certainly um, contributed considerably to the notoriety of this series of murders.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Uh, no, Liz Stride was Swedish. Can you describe what, what brought her to London? What was her life in England like in the years before she ended up, uh, alone in, in Whitechapel?
1: Well, Liz Stride was registered as a prostitute in Sweden. But how and why uh, isn't certainly known. She managed to uh, to gain some decent employment in Sweden, and um, she was uh, she was taken off the prostitutes register. And then a small inheritance enabled her to emigrate to London. Uh, she worked here and then uh, married and. Uh, even ran a a, a small coffee shop with her husband. But the marriage eventually collapsed. Uh, Elizabeth had apparently started drinking heavily, and this was the cause of the breakup, we're told. Uh, She took to pleading, apparently mainly mainly for uh, the Jews, and it was said that she could speak Yiddish. But her life spiraled downward, her drinking landed her in court on charges of being drunk and disorderly and using obscene language on several occasions. There's no known record of her being arrested for prostitution, but um, there's no reason to doubt that, as with many women at that time, she could have resorted um, and did resort to prostitution. Uh, whenever she had, when there was no other alternative, somebody said to me many years ago that uh, you'd be horrified uh, if you knew what great granny had done in her life to make ends meet. Mm-hmm. So this was not a, an uncommon thing in the East End. But a fellow, a fellow lodger where she stayed from time to time, told a journalist. He said, uh, "When she should, when she could get no work, uh, she had to do the best she could for a living, and so, and that was in relation to to being a a prostitute. But he was he was defending her, said that uh, she was uh, a nicer, cleaner woman you couldn't wish to meet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she was. Uh, Lestrade was had a had a." a a tragic life, I think.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Can you describe, uh, what Israel Schwartz saw on the night of, of Liz Stride's murder?
1: Israel Schwartz told the police that he had been walking home at night. Uh, a short distance ahead of him was a, was a man. And that man turned into burner street, which was also the direction in Schwartz was going, so he followed him in. Uh, a little up the way up the road, there was a lone woman. The man ahead of Schwartz stopped. There may have been a brief exchange of words, we we don't know, and then the man pulled the woman into the street and, and threw her to the ground. She gave a low scream uh, and Schwartz, thinking it was a domestic and, and not wanting to get involved, Uh, crossed the street and hurried away. As he did so, the man shouted out what sounded like Lipsky and Schwartz ran off, just seeing another man holding what he seriously described as a knife or a pipe. The attack had taken place very close to the spot where Elizabeth Stride was found dead and had taken place about 15 minutes before her body had been discovered. It was therefore possible that Schwartz had uh, seen the run-up to the murder
2: and the murderer. Mm. Mm. So in terms of the case as a whole, and in terms of trying to identify a suspect on the part of the police, prevent further killings, uh, how important was Israel Schwartz as a witness for having Seen these events?
1: It's very difficult to say how important uh, Israel Schwartz was. He wasn't called to the inquest, which perhaps uh, suggests that what Schwartz witnessed had nothing to do with the murder uh, or that it was dis- decided he was lying and the assault never took place. Whether or not he witnessed an assault on Elizabeth Stride, he was nevertheless a witness, if he was telling the truth, to what was going on in the street shortly before Stride's body was found. So in theory, he should have been called to give evidence. But of course, if the police thought that he wasn't telling the truth, then he had nothing relevant to say if he wasn't in Burner Street at the time. But however, we know that another street uh, witness in the street who'd also seen nothing, but whose testimony was relevant to what was happening, or rather not happening in Burner Street at the time of the murders, she wasn't called either. So it's possible that the police were keeping Schwartz under wraps, which they shouldn't really have done, Mm. and assuming they were doing it, or, or, or rather they shouldn't have done it, assuming that they did it at all, Or it's possible that Schwartz gave his testimony in camera or off the public record. Or finally, that he'd gone to ground and the police couldn't find him. So, basically, uh, if Schwartz was telling the truth, then his testimony would be important. Obviously, if he wasn't telling the truth, his testimony was unimportant. If he had been in the street at the time he said he was, but hadn't seen the assault on stride, his testimony was still relevant because he was there shortly before the murders were committed. However, Sir Robert Anderson, who was the head of the CID at the time, said in his memoirs, written in 1910, that Jack the Ripper had been positively identified by an eyewitness, the only person who ever had a good view of the murderer. This person had refused to give evidence because the murderer was a Jew like himself. So we are being told by Sir Robert Anderson that the witness was a Jew and that he had a good view of the murderer. We know of only two men who saw a man with a woman identified as a victim a man called Lavender, who was one of the three men who passed a woman they identified as Catherine Eddard, and Israel Schwartz. By no stretch of the imagination could Lavender genuinely be described as having had a good view of the murderer. So that means that the only Jewish eyewitness to anything that we know about was Israel Schwartz. So either Anderson's story confirms what Schwartz said and also means that Schwartz was Anderson's eyewitness, or the whole thing is open to serious
2: doubt. Mm. Now, in that, uh, in that story that, uh, that Schwartz tells, uh, there's that shout of, of Lipsky. Can you describe the Lipsky case that he is probably referring to there?
1: Yes. Um, very briefly, Israel Lipsky lived in Batty Street, which was uh, a street uh, adjacent to Berner Street, which is where Stride was murdered. Uh, A fellow lodger in the house was a young woman named Miriam Angel. And in June of 1887, she was poisoned with nitric acid, or nitric acid. Uh, It also appears that Lipsky had tried to commit suicide by drinking the acid too, uh, but he didn't die, and when he'd recovered, he was charged and tried and convicted Of murdering Miriam Angel. He denied having done so and uh, a lot of people believed him but uh, the jury wasn't amongst them and he was uh, sentenced to hang. There was a great deal of effort to uh, try and persuade the Home Secretary to commute the sentence but Henry Matthews refused to do so and Lipsky Uh, then wrote a confession uh, shortly before he went to the gallows. Many people still entertain doubt about his guilt. However, the name we're told, that the the name Lipsky, uh, was briefly used as a term of insult. So uh, it is to be assumed that the man who uh, Schwartz saw attacking a woman, um, uh, was, uh, making, a, a, a remark about, uh,
2: Schwartz's appearance. Mm. Mm. Um, from that same night when, uh, Liz Stride was killed, can you describe Leon Goldstein and what he contributed to what came to be the public image of Jack the Ripper?
1: Around the time Elizabeth Stride was murdered, uh, a man was seen in the street. Uh, He carried a black bag and uh, fortunately, a man named Leon Goldstein uh, recognized the description of himself in the newspaper and went along to the police. The contents of his black bag were utterly harmless and Mr. Goldstein went on his way. But his black bag stayed in the public's mind and added to the image of the toff, the the upper-class gent with a top hat, uh, wearing a cape and always carrying a black bag. Uh, The bag is iconic in the story of Jack the Ripper, um, as much as the Deerstalker hat is iconic in the image of Sherlock Holmes. So Leon Goldstein inadvertently gave rise to this this myth of the black bag, and uh, the police didn't help because they never released the story of Mr. Goldstein to uh, the press, so it was never significantly reported.
2: Hmm. Hmm. When was it that, that that the story that the police knew from their conversation with Goldstein uh, finally did become public so that you and I could know about it today?
1: Well, that's that's... Known as a consequence of the uh, since the release of the, the, the police files, because uh, they were they were kept private until the nineteen seventies, so uh, that's part of the information that's coming to light in these recent years. Mm. It uh, it's worthwhile remembering that up until really the year two thousand. Uh, research into Jack the Ripper and his crimes was severely curtailed by the fact that police files were closed. Uh, the newspaper library was in, effect, was in London, which effectively meant that anybody not living in or near London had to make <coughs> a major sacrifice to get there, to, to look through poli- uh, newspaper files. So, researching Jack the Ripper was, which, which, you know, has been done by private individuals, not people with with tons of money and uh, lots of spare time, and done when they are also trying to, uh, very often, uh, they, they have a job, full employment, uh, and... Uh, There may be a family and family demands. So they weren't able to go off and do all these things. But from 2000, uh, we've benefited greatly from the genealogical records that have been made available on sites like Ancestry and the massive digitization of newspapers which is going on uh, in America and here and elsewhere in the world, which has opened up uh, a huge range of information that prior to 2000, people didn't have access to. And um, uh, the, the search facilities available on the computers have made looking for information uh, so much easier. And with a click of a button, I can now find records that it would maybe have taken me a week to find 20 years ago that well, no, 20 years ago 30 or 40 years ago so there's a big difference there and also in 2000 um, Stuart Evans and Keith Skinner published uh, a book which contained all the police files which hitherto had o- again only been available to people living in or near London who uh, who, who could uh, see them at the public record office? Um, I, there are a few people, myself being one of them, who was lucky enough to be able to buy uh, a photocopy of the, the entire files, but that cost about a thousand over a thousand pounds. And that was back in 1987 when a thousand pounds was worth a hell of a lot more or had a, a bigger buying power than it does today. Mm. So when people say, oh, you know, uh, that uh, ripperologists aren't doing, haven't, haven't really paid an awful lot of attention to the people involved and the victims and everything, it's because we haven't really had access to the, the source materials until
2: relatively recently. Hmm. Hmm. Um- and I really commend your your book, Forgotten Victims, to anyone who does want to undertake uh, thinking along those lines. And I think you've done such a good job with, with that book uh, in talking about a number of murders that happened uh, over a span of time, including the Jack the Ripper murders, and discussing with some sensitivity um, how stories about, especially you know favored suspects and the identity of possible murderers uh includes or excludes consideration of the lives of women who lived and died in the east end in, in the 1880s um i thought you know in some ways it is a hard subject but it, it, in some ways i i found it a beautiful book and i'm and i'm really grateful for that one
1: thank
2: you um there's a there's a footnote in that book uh about the life of Catherine Eddowes that she had attended her cousin's public hanging in 1866. Um, Can you describe that event and the resulting gallows ballad chapbook about Christopher Robinson that was a part of who Catherine Eddowes was in the years before her murder?
1: Well, um, (laughs) Uh, not, not a great deal really about that. It was a passing, passing uh, statement that was made about Catherine Eddowes that she had gone to witness the the execution of uh, her relative. Um, the story basically is that. <clears throat> Uh, Eddowes and the man that she was uh, living with at the time uh, he was as far as we can tell the one who apparently wrote these little books and they, they were cheap uh, almost sort of pamphlets really that that uh, described events that had, had happened in very often in rhyme of some sort uh, and the as you said, Gallows Ballads, and they had gone to witness this uh, execution, and they had uh, produced one of the ballads. Whether this story is absolutely true or not, and uh, whether they were producing the these books again, um, we really. We really don't know I don't the, the trouble is that very few of these uh, things have survived hmm. they were almost throw away uh, things when they were created so it's very difficult to to know and I, I haven't actually seen uh, seen any ballad relating to uh, Edo's relative
2: hmm. Mm. Would you describe for us the events that occurred in Mitre Square?
1: Right. Um, Well, uh, at about 1.45 uh, in the morning, uh, PC Edward Watkins was on his beat, which uh, took him into Mitre Square. Which uh, was a small square with with three entrances. Uh, In the shadows of the southwest corner, uh, he saw the body of Catherine Eddowes. It emerged that about 10 minutes earlier, three men had passed one of the entrances to Mitre Square and had there seen a woman talking to a man. Two of the men walking past would later identify the woman by her clothing as Catherine Eddowes, and one of those men was the man that I mentioned earlier, Joseph Lavender. Um, now, it's very likely that they did see Catherine Eddowes with her murderer, but it is equally likely that the woman was not Catherine Eddowes, or even if it was Eddowes, that the man had just been accosted by her uh, when the three men walked by and had disengaged himself and walked on, leaving Edos to meet Jack the Ripper. So again, as with all of these cases, there are lots of variables. So they did see a woman. She they did recognize her and identify her by a fairly distinctive clothing as being Edo's. So they probably did see Edos with somebody, but there was a small uh, margin of time during which uh, the man that they saw could have left her, and if she had wandered into the shadows of uh, Mitre Square, then she might well have encountered Jack the Ripper lurking there, uh, listening to everything that had gone on and maybe propositioned her there and then. So we can't say that the man that she was with was the murderer.
2: Mm. Mm. Can you describe the way that the location of Mitre Square complicated the investigation?
1: Uh, I assume you mean that the murder of Mitre Square uh, in Mitre Square was committed uh, in the jurisdiction of the City of London Police. Yes. Yes. Uh, Many people don't realize that London actually has two police forces. The central part of London, uh, the business district known as the Square Mile, is the jurisdiction of the City of London police. And the uh, Metropolitan Police, uh, whose headquarters are at Scotland Yard, have charge of the rest. So the murder of uh, Catherine Eddowes introduced... Uh, Two forces, two sets of inquiries, Uh, um, they they liaised with one another, but we don't know for certain how well there were some complaints to the effect that the city police weren't passing across all the information. Um, There may well have been complaints by the city policemen that the Met weren't passing over all the information, but unfortunately all the city police files on this case were destroyed in the bombing of World War II, so we don't have any uh, of the police, the city police documentation telling us anything, any snippets of inside information.
2: Mm. 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 Yeah, that's a loss. <laughs> that's a loss. Um, Can you describe the the Golston Street graffito and Charles Warren's reaction to it?
1: Yeah, um, a a piece of apron uh, seems to have been torn from uh, the apron that Catherine Eddowes was, was wearing. Uh, and that, that piece of apron was, was later found in a sort of covered entrance to some stairs leading to the landings uh, of several flats or apartments. Uh, the a piece of apron was smeared with blood, and it appears to have been taken by the murderer to wipe his hands or knife. And above it on the wall was some writing in chalk which... Said something along the lines of the Jews are not the men to be blamed for nothing. The odd thing was that Jews were spelt J U W E S. We don't know whether that meant something or it was just a plain and ordinary misspelling. Anyway, ever since the leather apron business, there was growing animosity uh, towards the Jews and in this area. And the, head of, <clears throat> the head of H Division was Superintendent Thomas Arnold, and he concluded that the writing had nothing to do with the murderer, but he was concerned that the message might incite uh, further anti-Jewish unrest. It was a genuine concern because uh, we know that 50 extra policemen were drafted into the area the next day, to deal with any trouble. Mm. Arnold wanted to have the writing erased. He'd already got a man uh, with a wet sponge ready to wipe the wall clean. And Sir Charles Warren, the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, recognizing the seriousness of erasing what could have been the murderer's handwriting. Uh, carefully listened to Arnold's concerns and took the responsibility uh, of giving the order to wipe off the chalk writing. He took that responsibility upon himself so that uh, basically he'd get the blame and not uh, not uh, Thomas Arnold. So I think that gives an insight, a little insight into Charles Warren's character there anyway. Mm. Uh Later commentators, including uh, policemen such as Sir Robert Anderson, decided (coughs) uh, that Warren's actions were were wrong and described them as crass stupidity Um, and were of the opinion that Warren had destroyed the only clue ever to be left by the murderer. But in fairness to Warren... Uh, Superintendent Arnold had recommended the erasure and, as I said, had been waiting, about to give the order himself. Mm. Uh, His concerns about the message perhaps sparking anti-Jewish unrest were genuine. So Warren really had very little option but to accept that the anxieties of the man in charge of that part of London. Arnold knew it far better than Warren did. And Arnold also didn't believe that the writing had any connection with the crimes. So ever since then, people have argued about uh, whether the apron and the writing were connected or, and if not, what did the writing mean? And if they were connected, what did the writing mean? And so on. So (laughs) it's all a bit of a conundrum.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm. So would you describe for us the the speculation of Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown when he examined Catherine Eddow's body?
1: Uh, Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown was the police surgeon who conducted the autopsy on Catherine Eddowes. A kidney had been removed from Catherine Eddowes and apparently taken away by the murderer. Dr. Brown concluded that the removal of the kidney suggested that the murderer possessed anatomical knowledge and, to have successfully removed it, he thought that he must have had a degree of surgical skill. Other doctors who had examined the other victims did not necessarily agree, um, and some said that the Ripper didn't even possess the skill of a butcher. However, Dr. Brown's opinion fired what's perhaps the most popular theory about Jack the Ripper, namely that he was uh, a deranged doctor.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Um, Can you describe the, the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee? Um, and what led the committee to dissolve toward the end of October, on October
1: 20th A lot of the residents in the East End were were dissatisfied with the police investigation, and they, uh, they, they this, and those especially those with businesses, uh, formed together to offer a reward and to assist the policemen on their beat by patrolling the streets. Uh, keeping an eye out for suspicious men and reporting any they observed. They were called the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Uh, they were not, as they are sometimes described, vigilantes. Uh, they may be the same root to the word, but uh, they weren't taking the law into their own hands. Uh, they were merely keeping an eye open. They were being vigilant.
2: hmm. Mm. Um, and despite the, the dissatisfaction, uh, with the police at the time that the vigilance committee was formed, um, and you mentioned earlier, there is a major mobilization of the police in Whitechapel in October. Um, how would you describe that operation that's undertaken?
1: Well, basically the, the, the police had very little option, uh, but to catch the, the Catch Jack the Ripper in in the act, uh, and so therefore they drafted police into the area in large numbers from other parts of London. As ever, of course, there were issues with regarding the um, the cost of this exercise. So they they were the, they they came in, and then as things quietened down, they were moved out, and then they were moved back in again.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the month, uh, Robert Anderson asks Dr. Thomas Bond, who we mentioned earlier, to examine all of the medical evidence of the murders to that point. Um, why was Dr. Bond a trusted observer, uh, trusted by Robert Anderson and, uh, you know, what in his life had led him to be in Robert Anderson's trust? And then uh, when he did have the amassed evidence together, what did he conclude and, and did the police find it helpful?
1: Um, Dr. Thomas Bond was really the, the, the doctor that uh, Robert Anderson um, favored and. Uh, was was one of the senior uh, most senior of the uh, of the police surgeons and on the 25th of October uh, Robert Anderson asked Bond to assist in the Ripper investigation Uh, he hadn't done much on the earlier victims but he was able to study their inquest testimony uh, and he had seen Mary Kelly's body and he submitted a report on the 10th of, sorry, 10th of November. Mm. Uh, so he uh, he was the senior, as I said, was the senior surgeon. He was the, the surgeon to A Division of the Metropolitan Police, that's, the, the division basically was Scotland Yard was and he reviewed the notes as um, as we know and had been involved in the uh, inquest. any uh, in, in, sorry the autopsy on uh, Mary Kelly he was basically uh, the first if not the first one of the earliest uh, psychological or cre- creators of a psychological profile. He, uh, his report to Anderson basically profiled uh, the murderer and said things like um, he, uh, he, uh, he, he concluded that the murderer would not necessarily be splashed or deluged with blood uh, his hands and arms uh, must have been covered and parts of his clothing must certainly have been smeared with blood. But he could have rolled down his sleeves and, and, and put on gloves and things so he could have made his escape without blood necessarily being all over him. Um he concluded things like he, he thought the the mutilations in all the, the cases uh, except Burner Street were all of the same character. He said, and uh, so we that's one of the reasons why the the, the murderer of the murder of Elizabeth Stride sometimes isn't thought to be one of the uh, the Ripper victims. But then, at the same, having said that. Um, the circumstances of that murder were different. She, Stride, wasn't mutilated. It appears that the murderer had made an escape. Um, so, that's really, all I can say on Bond.
2: That's great. That's that's good. And I'll have, uh, I'll have Adam Adam Wood has has written a lot about, about Bond's career in his Swanson book. So, when I talk with him, we'll get to go into Bond's history a little more. So, that's great. That's great. Um. After after Mary Kelly's killing, can you describe the way that the police worked to make sure that that her murder, despite uh, its horrific nature, did not incite the same kind of of press coverage of the previous killings? Uh,
1: the the issue I think with uh, with after Mary Kelly was really that um. It was, bec- it was the, the murder of Kelly was committed within the jurisdiction of a different coroner. Again, coroners had, had different areas that they were responsible for. And the previous murders, with the exception of um, Catherine Eddowes in the City of London, had fallen within the jurisdiction of Wynne Baxter. And he was a man who took care to question almost everyone with something relevant to say and to probe what they said as best uh, best he could. Mary Kelly fell within the jurisdiction of Dr. Roderick MacDonald, and he decided to take only that information necessary to establish the cause and time of death. So the inquest was over within a day. The effect. Of this was that it curtailed the sort of press speculation um, that had been indulged in when reporting the inquests day after day in between adjournments. Whether this was done in accordance with Dr. McDonald's personal beliefs uh, about how inquests should be conducted or was done at the request of the police or even the Home Office, the result uh, was that it, it switched off press interest, almost like you were switching off an electric light. Uh, reports continued to be made of other murders in the area, and there were flurries of Jack the Ripper excitement. But for many, uh, it put a full stop to the murders. Kelly was indeed re- regarded by many as as the last Jack the Ripper murder.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Um- and there, there are some writers who've written that uh, Charles Warren resigns because of the failure of the police to solve the case, to catch the killer. Uh, you mentioned earlier his his conflicts with, with Matthews leading up to the Murrays magazine article. Um, so in your mind, what were the reasons that Warren did resign? Uh, maybe just the article. Um and his and his conflict with Matthews, and then what was the process for selecting as a new commissioner uh, Monroe, as you mentioned, once Charles Warren had left his post? Um, <clears throat> I think
1: it's fairly well established that the reason why uh, Warren resigned was because he'd he was basically fed up with the restrictions that were being placed upon him uh, by the Home Office. He was somebody who ran his own business, as it were, and uh, resented the, the fact that he had to sometimes go cap in hand to somebody else for permission to do what he believed was the right thing to do. And the writing of the Murray's Magazine article, which didn't contain anything really that anybody could object to, but Matthews did object to it because simply because Warren hadn't asked his permission to, to write it and have it published. Warren, I think, also had probably been quite keen to to leave the job uh, and uh, prior to to this blowing up in his face Uh, Monroe was a had been a senior policeman in India uh, and on his return to England he'd have been appointed assistant commissioner CID he also ran into trouble with uh, with Warren mainly because Monroe, like Warren, wanted to run his own department his way and he didn't like uh, Warren interfering any more than Warren liked Matthews interfering. It's just odd, perhaps, that Monroe, who must have understood Warren's problems, had no sympathy for... Warren, who was suffering the same as Monroe was suffering, only with Warren. Mm. But So he resigned, and uh, the Home Office then appointed him to a special permission to run a clandestine secret department uh, reporting on subversive groups other than the Fenians. So he was still there, if you like, uh, running this separate section. Uh, and he was consulted about the Whitechapel murders uh, throughout, and was perhaps therefore, uh, for very many reasons, best equipped to head the Met at the time. And I don't think that there was much of a process uh, of um, of selection process going on. I think Monroe was basically chosen for the job
2: and put into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned that there are further murders that happen in the East End. Uh, some of them do generate more speculation, uh, more press coverage, more interest in whether or not uh, Jack the Ripper, the sa- you know, the, whether or not the same hand was involved. Um, so I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Alice McKenzie and Francis Coles. Um, how was the, the murder of Alice McKenzie investigated? relative to the killings that we've talked about so far nichols and chapman eddowes stride kelly well,
1: initially in the case of alice mckenzie um james monroe personally took charge of that murder investigation and he initially because sir robert anderson was on holiday again Uh, and he initially believed that she was murdered by the same person who had committed the earlier murders. Uh, But but he later changed his mind, and so the, 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 the murder of Alice McKenzie was just followed as if it were an ordinary murder investigation. What's interesting, I suppose, for... Today, for people who are interested in who the Ripper was, is that although Monroe later changed his mind, his initial conclusion means that the Ripper had not been identified at the time of Mackenzie's murder in July 1889. So, various suspects who were dead by that time uh, or had either not become suspects at that point, uh, or they weren't the Ripper. The murder of Francis Coles, again, doesn't appear really to have any connection with uh, the Jack the Ripper murders, Um, but it is significant for being the last murder included in the White Shackle murders file held by the police. Francis Coles also, to some extent, comes across as possibly one of the uh, nicest of the victims, from what little we know about her.
2: Hmm. Yeah, what gives us that impression about about her about her life?
1: I think it was the fact that she was uh, she had tried various jobs. Um, and one of which appears to have uh, damaged her hands. Uh, She was not able to do jobs. She tried very hard to retain some degree of respectability and particularly not to let her father uh, know what she was doing or or what she'd become uh, and always tried to keep her clothes look or keep looking decent she also uh when she met up with thomas sadler that uh, that last night of her life she had tried to basically take care of him and look after him and she'd obviously taken drinks and in you know done what she was supposed to do but she just comes across as being hard done by somebody she 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 wouldn't probably have been doing what she was doing in a, at a different time in a different place I'm I'm not sure that she comes across as having other failings such as being a, a desperate alcoholic or or anything like that not, or not failings particularly but but illness issues of that kind uh, mm. she, she was just somebody who seems to have found herself in hard, having hard times almost through no fault of her own.
2: Mm. yeah. Um, when we're thinking about, yeah, stepping further and further away from the time of the murders and, and starting to look back on them um, and almost to shape our understanding of them from a historical perspective... Uh, who was Melville McNaughton and, and what role did he have in, in joining the investigation?
1: Well, Melville McNaughton had been a, uh, was, was a him from a, a wealthy family uh, that had uh, tea plantations in India and he'd gone to run the tea plantations. They were, it, it was a tough time for him. They they were fairly remote from the rest of civilization. He didn't get to see an awful lot of people, but he appears to have stuck it out and uh, and been quite good at what he did. But at one point, uh, he ran into trouble with uh, with some of the natives and basically they, they, they beat him up and left him for dead in the plane. Uh, fortunately, he recovered and um, he uh, eventually returned to England. But as a consequence of that event, he actually met James Monroe, who was uh, the senior policeman out there at the time. And so the two of them became quite good friends. So when uh, McNaughton came back to Britain, Monroe uh, wanted him, to join the Met and become, I think it was Assistant Chief Constable. Uh, all appeared to be going swimmingly until Warren found out about this incident of him being beaten up in India, and he really then said no. And so that was another interference uh, with uh, with Monroe's department that that put him at odds with Warren. So uh, it was the following year uh, that uh, McNaughton was, when after Warren had gone, that McNaughton managed to, uh, or the, Monroe managed to get McNaughton into, in, into place. So he joined the Met in the middle of 1889. And so he was there for all the, uh, the, the, the later, to investigate the later murders. But he had a tremendous interest in the case and apparently kept pictures of the victims and other information in his desk drawer, so he would have been able to make acquaint himself with, with all the the basic facts of the investigation. Um, and then of course he was active in the subsequent investigation. So he became quite a, a knowledgeable person. And he wrote uh, a report Uh, called the, which we refer to as the McNaughton Memorandum. And uh, he wrote this probably in anticipation of questions being asked of the police about a man called Thomas Cutbush, who a newspaper at the time was identifying, but not naming him, as Jack the Ripper. In this report... He briefly summarizes the Jack the Ripper murders and refers to three suspects. They were uh, Montague John Druitt, somebody called Kazminsky, and uh, a man called Ostrog. We don't know very much about any of them. Druitt appears to have been uh, come to the attention of the police some years after McNaughton joined the Met. A lot of it has been done on uh, Kozminski. We don't know for sure who kosminski was, but the we do know that he went into an asylum and the only uh, k anything ski that's been found in uh, asylum records is a chap called Aaron kozminski, and a lot of theorizing has been done about him and uh, Michael ostrog it uh, turns out that he was actually uh, in a prison in France at the time the murders were committed. And so he couldn't have been Jack the Ripper, but obviously McNaughton didn't know that when he wrote the memorandum. So he's become quite an important figure in the case.
2: Do we know how the memorandum was received on its first being written?
1: Well, uh, as far as we can tell, it, it, It was never received by anybody. Uh, We we suppose, we we assume that it was written for uh, his senior officer, which at that time would have been Robert Anderson, Um, or it was prepared at Anderson's request, or Monroe's request possibly, uh, for... The attention of the home office but we really don't know and there's nothing there are no uh, none of the usual stamps to suggest that this was received by somebody or read by somebody as are uh, appended to most documents so it may not ever have been needed and Monroe uh, sorry McNaught just stuck it into the files we do know what's interesting is that there was a, a copy that he kept a copy of that report, which differs slightly from the one in the police files, which some people have argued uh, was something that uh, McNaughton wrote later. Um, I think it was; it's more likely to be a, a rough draft of the one that's in the police files. They basically say that... The same thing,
2: mm.
1: but there are important details that are different. So it probably wasn't. We can't, you know, it wasn't received by anybody. So there's no reaction to it.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, stepping now more towards those kinds of retrospective uh, questions and considerations, you've written that that when Baxter, uh, the coroner, for everyone except uh, Eddowes and, and Kelly, um that he gained undeserved notoriety for advancing the theory that the murders were committed in order to obtain the victim's internal organs. Um, would you say more about that theory? Why it drew the attention it did to Baxter and why it was un- undeserved?
1: Well, when Baxter, uh, had heard that an American doctor was trying to buy uteri, uh, And the explanation given for this, uh, improbable as it sounds, was to accompany a book he was writing. Now, when Baxter heard this story and at the inquest suggested uh, that... uh, that this had possibly may have been heard, or something like it may have been heard by the murderer and given the murderer the idea of killing women in order to obtain organs that he could then sell. Uh, in honesty, it was an insane idea. Um, but Wynne Baxter suggested that it was the murderer was insane. So in fairness to Baxter, all he suggested was that a madman might have been inspired by a story that was in circulation at the time. And I think that's quite quite reasonable. I mean, a madman, to be honest, could have been inspired by anything. And Mm -hmm. we we know that the most obscure things seem to uh, inspire people to to kill. Um, It's just a pity that Because when Baxter put forward this idea, it's been assumed that the idea was his. It wasn't really his. There was a doctor who was trying to buy uteri. We don't know who he was, unfortunately, but there was one. Um, And uh, it's perfectly reasonable to think that somebody who was... uh, Insane would have uh, might have been inspired by that, so I think it's really unfair to, to take Win Baxter there and give him give him trouble for mm. for
2: something that wasn't his. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, in in your Forgotten Victims book, you you talk a bit about uh, the Raynham, the Whitehall, the Pynchon, and other torso or, or Thames murders and. You noted that at the time of writing, um, they had drawn little attention relative to what we consider the Ripper killings. Could you say a few more words on on that?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's a very good question. Uh, Unfortunately, it's one to which there's no definitive answer. I guess it's part uh, because they were overshadowed by the Whitechapel murders and therefore they just didn't get the publicity that they one imagines that they might have done had they uh, had the whitechapel murders not been committed at the same time equally of course it depends on what really grabs the attention of of the press and these were body parts in effect that were being found Uh, at different times in fairly separated places, Uh, and unlike the Ripper killings, which were suggested one person operating in a very small area. Uh, It may well be that the the Torso killings just didn't grab public attention, And, and we have known about these murders for quite a long time, and it's only in the last few years that people have been writing books about them and uh, really bringing them into the sphere of, of anybody interested in the Ripper murders as well, because they show what was going on at the time.
2: Mm. Mm. Um, <clears throat> in that same book, uh and, and you offered a few comments on this, on this earlier, um, but just stepping toward wrapping up our conversation for today, um, in that book you've written that often the stories of women killed in Whitechapel are omitted from the studies of the murder and that their status, um, whether they're in or out of being included in, in the victims of a, you know, Jack the Ripper, uh, kind of depends on, in, in your term, the, the, the whim of the theorist about the identity of the killer um with that in mind would you be going to offer how you have gone about thinking about the identity of suspects potential um possibilities for who the murderer was well right from the i've
1: never been terribly interested in the identity of jack the ripper oddly enough um it was always for me was compiling the data the the about all the crimes and what led to various conclusions and so forth so it's really i think that the chances of us ever knowing who jack the ripple was largely depends on who the police at the time thought Jack the Ripper was and the only clues to that that we have are the, is, are the names provided in the McNaughton memoranda and to a slightly lesser extent to uh, Francis Tumblety who was uh, a definite suspect at a time at some point um, and, and maybe one or two others, but there's that's basically it. And of those, really, I suppose it all boils down to Druitt and Kozminski and the research that has been done on them. Um, and I wouldn't like to. And I know, to be honest, I, I really don't feel capable of. Uh, sort of nailing my colours to, to, to the mast of either one mm. at the moment. I think they're subjects that really do demand uh, a, lot more in, uh, a lot more investigation and research. And I suppose that really is where trying to understand what was going on at the time and, and understanding the history of the case become so important because, for example, uh, it was, uh, in the case of Kuzminski, uh we believe that he is also a suspect named by Anderson as being the witness, uh, sorry, the, the person who was... Uh, seen by a witness the only person who have had a good view of the murderer and so what anderson wrote and how seriously he can be taken depends to a very great extent on what we know about sir robert anderson and what kind of man he was mm. and how things that we know about him may have influenced the way he believed and the things that he said that is for example uh, some people have said that he and and it strangely enough has has almost become an accepted fact that he was anti-semitic And that was something that was levelled, an accusation that was levelled at him at the time, and he vehemently denied it. And the evidence, such as we have it, would support that denial. So there's no real evidence that I am aware of that Anderson was anti-Semitic, but this is a neat theory provided by people who want to undermine what he said And it doesn't have any support. So we really need to study people like Anderson and McNaughton and Swanson in great depth. The trouble is, there's not an awful lot of information out there that enables us to to do that. If they had been politicians or something, there'd probably be 15 biographies of them, like there (laughs) are with with people like Gladstone. Mm. But that's where we are. And nobody has done. That in-depth research really um, uh, Adam Wood has done a tremendous book about Swanson, and probably has packed into that book everything that anybody will ever know about Swanson, mm. and um, and it does really help to get some sort of insight into in into Swanson because he was the man who wrote the uh the notes in a copy of Anderson's book that tends to confirm the things that Anderson said about his suspect who we believe to be McNaught Skosminsky. So um you know that it really is important the history now is is becoming really important. We can't just theorize willy-nilly we we really do have to get down to the serious level of history.
2: Mm. 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 And maybe as a, as a final thought to conclude our conversation, um, could you offer what in your opinion, studying the Whitechapel murders of 1888 gives to us in the present? What's the value of this ongoing study, which has been, has been undertaken ever since the murders and you know, doesn't look like it will stop anytime soon, um, but having dedicated, as you said, so much of your own writing life to this case, what have you discovered? Maybe as you've done this work.
1: Well, as I said, I think the. I think the main thing is that. I've I've probably said it a thousand times. uh, Is that Jack the Ripper, the the mystery? If it attracts, uh, if if the if the mystery itself is something that somebody enjoys, if they're curious about trying to resolve uh, who Jack the Ripper was, just in the same way as they might be if they're interested in who King Arthur was or who Robin Hood was or any any of those sort of mysteries of identity. The great thing about it is that it gets you to read books. People who are interested and want to know, they read the books, and they very often they collect the books. More important than that is that they actually think about what they're reading, and, and that's no bad thing either. So you, those are two basic things that you get out of it that, that you learn, and of course, it. I, I have found from right from when I got interested in this myself that people would be interested in the mystery of identity. They would perhaps retain that mystery, but they would get interested in some other aspect of uh, of the case. So, uh, I always had one person in mind who I know was. Uh, drawn to the Ripper by the mystery of identity and then found out that one of the suspects came from Chiswick where he lived and then he started to investigate the connection with Chiswick and then he start, took that even further and, and ended up being quite a, uh, a, well, a highly knowledgeable local historian. Uh, and so it, it took him off in all sorts of different directions. I mentioned earlier the, uh, issue of horses dropping dead in the street. When you think about it, horses then were like cars are today. And if your car breaks down now, you call somebody like one of the, uh, the motoring organizations here, it would be the AA or something like that. Uh, there was a similar operation, uh, which were the horse slaughterers in Victorian London, and they had a branch all over different places. And they would come out, and they would get the the horse and uh, take it back to their to their yards. So there, there's all this business going on, um, and about the way that people lived. And and so there are people who have actually specialised in learning about the horse-slaughtering business that was huge in Victorian London, and really one company basically had the monopoly on it. And so there's all kinds of things that, that people lead off, uh, to, to discover and as I say the the murder aspect of it adds a, a frission of, of excitement. But of course it's not just that. I mean Jack the Ripper now is part of our of popular culture
2: mm.
1: the, known around the world. Uh, you still can, I believe, go to a burger bar, in Singapore, where they're selling, uh, you can have an Annie burger, uh, which is somewhat. The thought of that is rather repellent, but nevertheless, it's. It just goes to show how how deep uh, Jack the Ripper has penetrated in, into the national psyche. In in some cases, you can see how the name has been used in everything from advertising which virtually began at the, as the murders were being committed.
2: Mm.
1: Uh, right through, there's everything. There was a worldwide World War II bomber called Jack the Ripper. Uh, there's everything from a toilet spray to a computer game, a, a beer mat to a novel or a movie or even an opera, all about Jack the Ripper. So that's an area that is a very valid uh, area for study. And I'm sure that just as there have been books written just about uh, the TV and uh, and and movies about Jack the Ripper, uh, I'm sure that somebody at some point is going to write a popular culture book, probably quite an academic one, which I wouldn't understand uh, about about the way that Jack the Ripper is part of, of everything that's going on today. And, and then, of course, right at the end is the is Jack the Ripper as a mystery. And understanding, perhaps even solving it, you have to study the evidence. You have to know how people lived and so on, because all of how they lived could have a bearing on what they did and therefore ultimately lead to perhaps a discovery of who the murderer was or getting close to that. And that means you've got to, as I said, you have to read books, which is no bad thing. But you've got to learn about sources, hmm. which ones are and which ones aren't reliable. All the sorts of things that that historians do that's part of their job. And many of those things have applications in in our world. Uh, such as now there is an increasing need to distinguish between trustworthy and untrustworthy news stories and blogs and web pages, and goodness knows what else. And looking at the ripper mystery is a good way of learning how um, how to do these things and, and how to be uh, sort of analytical and and. and how to understand sources in many respects in schools where Jack Ripper is taught, uh, because it adds that frission of, of excitement uh, to otherwise tedious life in Victorian Britain. but it teaches people how to uh, about things like very simple. Historians 101 stuff like, uh, what is a primary source? What's a secondary source? What's a tertiary source? Are wh- newspapers one of those? And if so, which one? And how do you distinguish between uh, the editorial in a newspaper and the news story? All of that kind of stuff. Um, so Jack the Ripper really does have an area where it teaches. it can teach people things on so many different levels. And that for me, I think, is the thing. And uh, but, but I suppose as a writer, if you want to understand Jack the Ripper, you've got to read books, mm-hmm. which is great, because then you can go out and buy mine and help <laughs> me to live.
2: Brilliant. Brilliant, Paul.
0: That's it for this week's episode of Unobscured. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio,
1: visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.